Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. We hear from a lot of you uh, in our community how hard getting an accurate diagnosis of different types of dementia uh, is. Oftentimes, people are just diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease as the default when, in fact, um, you discover it's another type of dementia. So today, we thought we would delve into FTD, otherwise known um, known as FTD, but stands for Frontal Temporal Lobe Dementia. Uh, impacts um, the front parts of our, our brains, uh, the frontal lobe of our brains. Um, so joining us today, we have with us Don Kirby. Don Kirby is the mom of a daughter who was diagnosed with FTD at the very young age of 29 years old. And Dr. Brad Dickerson, um, I've met Brad um, several times um, at conferences um, throughout in different places in the world. He is really the top expert on FTD, someone who you really want to talk to um, should you be diagnosed or suspect that you have um, FDD. So thank you both very much for joining us. So um, I'd like to start first on with you. Um, 29 years old, um, to have a daughter with FTD, that's, that's unimaginable. Um, however, your story is not uncommon um, in the fact that it took two years to get an accurate diagnosis. So can you tell us a little bit about what your daughter was going through um, before uh, she was diagnosed and how she finally got diagnosed? Sure, and thank you for um, having me. I'm really um, happy to share the story because I believe awareness is very important um, for everyone concerning this type of disease. Um, my daughter, Kara, was a nurse. Uh, she was married. Uh, she was um, going through infertility um, treatments because she was wanting desperately to have a baby. Uh, in 2017, um, she was due to have a baby in July. Um, we lost my 16-year-old niece in a car accident six weeks before she had the baby. Then my, um, she had the baby, and three days later, her grandfather died. And Kara started having, um, you know, some withdrawing, seeming depressed, becoming anxious, maybe some um, started to have some OCD, um, irrational fears. First, we thought it was because she, it was very traumatic. And also being a new mom, you have a tendency to be a little bit overzealous when it comes to germs and things like that. So uh, the first few months, we just seen her wanting to sleep a lot more, withdrawing. Um, and then by about four months in, um, Kara started telling me she had this devil voice. And this voice would cuss at her and tell her everyone was dying. Like she would say, I say, I wonder what my mom's doing in her mind. And this voice would say, she's dead. She's dead, like repetitively. And so, of course, I decided I, we needed to see a doctor. And um, I saw she'd actually seen a counselor because she had dealt with, we'd had several deaths in our family. And we had dealt with some the traumatic experiences. Anyway, uh, we were sent to a, a psychiatrist. Uh, multiple medications were used. Um, we saw him the beginning of 2018. And we just continued to see her decline, her um, OCD. She was washing her hands till they bled. She was um, 
just very repetitive, watch the same movie, eat the same foods. Um, she became, like I say, she had were very blunt in her emotions. Um, she didn't seem to show any, whether it be happiness or sadness. And um, finally, by the summer of 2018, she was um, admitted to the perinatal psychiatric unit in uh, UNC at Chapel Hill, which there's only two in the nation, one in New York and there. We thought we'd go there a couple weeks, they'd readjust her medication um, and approach her as a postpartum psychosis type uh, patient. After 70 days, two and a half months, uh, she was still not diagnosed. We, we were sent home after electric convulsive therapy, a few sessions of that, uh, 28-hour EEG, lumbar puncture, lots of different testing. Um, at one point, the radiologist, the head of radiology, felt like he did see changes on her MRI, but they consulted with neurology, and they thought it was like a hypoplasty. Maybe she was born that way. It was in the caudate heads. And so when we got home after that, huge trip and they treated her exceptionally well and they were very upset that they just couldn't seem to figure her out. Um, then her doctor decided we need to go to Mayo Clinic and it was actually for a psychiatric eval. And once the psychiatrist there saw her, she wanted a complete neurological um, workup of their own and started running multiple tests. And then we were sent to Dr. Beauvais, <laughs> who is our, um, our hero. He has just been amazing. Um, so that's, it took from the middle of 2017 to February of 2019, almost two years um, to get her diagnosed. And by that point, she was, you know, already accelerating and um, declining. And that's not an uncommon story, unfortunately, that long, and especially with a 29 year old, I mean, I mean, to be honest, the last thing you're thinking about is dementia when you're when you're talking about 29 years old. Dr. Dickerson, there's two things that stand out here to me. One is it seemed like um, Kira is under a lot of stress at the time, and I've never heard of stress associated with um, FTD. I don't know if there's a proven connection there. Um, but secondly, I want you to comment overall, like why is FTD harder to die or is it harder to diagnose than other dementias? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, thanks for sharing your story. Um, I think that FTD is a rare disease. Um, we don't really know because of the challenges in diagnosis. We don't really know what the numbers are. But if we think about uh, the most common cause of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, that is estimated to affect 5 million Americans. Um, if we think about Parkinson's disease, for example, that's estimated to affect a million Americans. FTD probably doesn't even affect 200,000 people in the U.S., which is the number that the FDA typically uses to uh, designate a disease as a rare disease. It may even be as few as 50,000. Um, we don't really know. But I think when you're dealing with a rare disease, um, it, it just takes medical professionals longer to recognize it. Um, but especially when, as you said, Deborah, when you're talking about someone so young, um, most medical practitioners have never been taught that someone in that age range 
might be uh, developing a neurodegenerative brain disease like frontotemporal degeneration, or sometimes we see Alzheimer's at that age or other uh, conditions like Huntington's disease. Um, so I, I think it's just, um, you know, much more common for people to have a postpartum psychotic depression or another condition that sounds like was top in people's minds when they first started evaluating her. So it's not necessarily that the stress is a catalyst or a trigger. It's more just like another symptom. Is that what you mean? Well, I think whenever someone is diagnosed with a neurodegenerative dementia, the problem is that these are insidiously progressive conditions that are very difficult to date the onset of in terms of when a person began to exhibit symptoms. And so it's common that we look back and we attribute some of those early symptoms to something going on in a person's life. And there's always some type of a stressful experience that is linked at some point in time with early symptoms. And that's often, you know, really um, a marker for people to think about, okay, I know it was two years ago, but when did we really notice this? Okay, well, it was at so-and-so's funeral, you know, and there was a lot of stress going on then. So I think the tendency is just to remember back and try to think what was a milestone that was happening at that time. There's a lot we don't know about whether stress might be uh, reducing the brain's resilience to, you know, anything that may be injuring it. It probably is, but there's no clear evidence that stress itself is a cause of FTD or another brain disease that is associated with dementia, but there's still a lot we don't understand about it. Do you, Don, um, have that aha, like in hindsight? I like, I love asking this question because you get a lot of, uh, from the patients or the caregivers, you know, in mm -hmm. after the diagnosis, is there anything that kind of went off in your mind to say, oh, that must have been, you know, the reason for this? Uh, yes. Um, what You always want to look back and, and try to think of things that were happening and there, once again, we had so many traumatic, stressful situations that there was a reason for her actions or becoming withdrawn, especially um, after my niece passed away. They were extremely close. They, Maddie was uh, Kara's mini me, as she called her, and she wouldn't come to family gatherings before the funeral. And because she wanted to protect the baby, she became very withdrawn. Um, I think that her resilience had been knocked down due to the fact that she already had this process happening. Um, when she was pregnant, she wanted to go eat the same foods. She was very kind of obsessive about things. I just thought it was more of the fact that she was anxious about the pregnancy. You know, right. she was being more particular. So we're getting um, comments in now um, and, you know, I've known FTD from people like you, um, Dr. Dickerson, to, like it's indicative of one of the first symptoms. It's often behavioral. It's not memory. It's not, I can't remember things, but rather like uncharacteristic behaviors. Um, and, and one person um, is writing to us and saying, are there non-reasons, angry outbursts, um, are there reasons, you know, angry outbursts are a symptom, like what's happening inside the brain? So can you comment on the behavioral aspects and what we know, um, both, you know, in terms of diagnosing and as a symptom um, of FTD? Yeah, I think that um, when we think about memory or language or 
things like visual skills or movement related activities, we think about people getting funneled toward a neurologist. When we think about people having changes in their emotions or in their social behaviors, typically we think about people getting channeled toward a psychiatrist. I think that you know the field of behavioral neurology and the field of neuropsychiatry really are right at the intersections between these two fields. And so someone can be trained as a neurologist, but then get advanced training as a behavioral neurologist or trained as a psychiatrist and get advanced training as a neuropsychiatrist. And that's really a recognition that these a condition like FTD is right at the intersection between these fields. And the, our fields didn't used to be separate in the more than a century ago now, but they've really diverged in ways that are, um, I think, exacerbating this challenge. And I do see some movement back together again as we learn more about the neuroscience of emotion or social behavior. Um, but I, so I think it makes some sense that, you know, when people think about where to send a person that's got certain kinds of symptoms, that many people that are ultimately diagnosed with the behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia start out by being evaluated by psychiatrists or other mental health professionals. Okay, so give us um, give us a cheat sheet because we get we get a lot of doctors too who watch our interviews as well, and um, you know this is obviously an area that needs expertise. Um, what is it? How should doctors be diagnosing this? What and and on the reverse side, what questions should people be asking their doctors in order to facilitate a more accurate diagnosis? Yeah, I think the. Um place to start really is to say, um, you know, is this person losing function? Is this person beginning to not do the things that they used to be able to do, whether it's taking care of, of a new baby or whether it's participating in family, important family activities? Um, you know, when that is, when function is affected, it really needs to be escalated to a serious problem. Uh, you know, I think that it's fine for people to be working with their primary care doc if they're feeling like their mood is down, but they're still maintaining their social and occupational responsibilities, um, family responsibilities, you, you know, but if, if personality or mood is off in some way and the person's function is compromised, they're not able to do their normal activities, they need a more a serious evaluation that would typically start out with a psychiatrist if the person is thought to maybe have a serious enough depression that they're not able to carry out their normal activities, which many people with major depressive disorder have. So then the question is, you know, what exactly are the person's symptoms? You know, can you just describe those in, in basic terms? Are they hopeless and sad and crying? Um, do they show any signs of distress? Are they able to tell you about what their feelings are that are you know, causing them not to be able to function normally? Many people with primary psychiatric illnesses that are much more common, like major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, are quite capable of talking about their own experience and the distress they're feeling. Sometimes it's serious enough that they really are so shut down that that's difficult, but that's less common. I think when people are able to, to describe their internal experience and are distressed by it, that's less likely to be frontotemporal dementia. I think many people with frontotemporal dementia really lack insight even from early on. And this is not a universal pattern, but it's much more common that if a person says, oh, there's nothing wrong with me, but it's very clear 
that other people are seeing big things wrong with them, but they're not, they don't seem to be aware of it. It may not be denial. It may be that they just lack insight into the changes they're experiencing. And that should be a greater red flag for the possibility of a neurologic illness, such as frontotemporal dementia, or even something like a brain tumor that can present very similarly to frontotemporal dementia. Don, can you share with us um, some of, you were talking about how your daughter is sadly progressing very rapidly suddenly. Um, can you tell us about some of those symptoms? Uh, yes, after she was diagnosed, uh, she could still carry on a conversation. She could um, fix her, her medicine um, box. She, she knew all the medications. She could do that for several months, um, but yet she did lack insight into what was wrong with her, or she would say something that was very um, unrealistic, but yet she didn't realize it was. And, and you're right, as she became like her hygiene, she was not able to, or she didn't really care. There was total apathy when it came to hygiene, uh, that type of thing, which was um, different. And then the fact that she would say things in public that were, um, you know, like, inappropriate or she didn't care about other people's space, personal space. But then it started escalating to the point where um, then she started having trouble. Now she has trouble with her bowels and bladder. Um, she's unable to control them, um, uh, especially the bowel. It's almost always, we, she wears Depends 24 hours a day. Um, she needs 24 hour care. Uh, she has really for the last two years mainly for safety because she had no insight very poor judgment um one time she went into um, walmart and this was just prior like a month or two before she got diagnosed um she was staying with her husband at that time they're since divorced but um she went to walmart to buy groceries and um her debit card didn't work she was going through the self-checkout the debit card didn't work so she tried it several times and she just walked off with the groceries and her husband messaged me and said, oh, Kara said she didn't pay for the groceries. I call her. She could tell me exactly how much it was, like $41.35. But she had no clue that what she had done was inappropriate. You know, she was like, well, what else was I supposed to do? And the, the normal Kara would have been devastated. Right. So right. we saw those type of behaviors. But now we're going into some more physical aspect, like beginning to have early signs of swallowing issues. Um, and her behaviors have changed. Um, she's very much like a toddler. Um, and I, I wanted I, to ask um, Dr. Dickerson about that. Do, do they tend to, you know, kind of regress back to childhood? Um, she throws stuffed animals in the air. She's, you know, those type of things. But now, and she doesn't act like it bothers her at all not to, like she doesn't have the processing skills to go into the bathroom. I don't quite understand that. Right, so let's throw that to, to Dr. Dickerson. How, is that common with FTD? Unfortunately, yes. Um, I think that you can think of it in some ways as a regression, um, as can sometimes be the case with, with any type of dementia. I mean, I think the thing that we always have to just make sure we keep front and center in our minds is the fact that it's not typically global, meaning, you know, there may be certain abilities that appear to regress in a sense that they're almost childlike, but 
this person has been an adult, you know, and we always have to do everything we can, which I'm sure you, you know, bend over backwards to do, Don, to um, mm -hmm. acknowledge the, the um, adult nature of some possible functions mm -hmm. inside that brain of hers and just be help her maintain as much dignity as possible. But a lot of times people do seem to behave in a way that's more childlike. And they, mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the blessing in this whole curse is that the fundamental brain machinery that allows us to feel uh, devastated by the diagnosis of any serious illness, of, uh, including FTD, that brain machinery is the fundamental brain machinery that's affected by FTD. And so I, I think that most patients really um, don't feel the devastation or don't feel the, the um, sadness or maybe the self-consciousness or embarrassment or whatever um, we might imagine that it would be normal to feel um, when they're experiencing these kinds of uh, events and the compromise in their functioning. So, you know, I truly believe, and this comes back to pain too, in some respects, some people really don't feel pain in the same way that they normally would have. And so, you know, it, it really makes you realize those parts of the brain are just not working anymore. And in some ways that's a blessing for, for many patients, I think. So I, I wanna talk about the, the frontal um, part lobes of our brain because we're getting a lot of questions. Um, one, one viewer is saying, she's saying that her husband does compulsive things, for example, walking excessively. Um, and she said he's been diagnosed with PP, uh, sorry, we're getting so many questions in it, just uh, PPNFA, which uh, do you know what that is, Brad? I'm not, is, that, is that a type of FTD? What is PPNFA? Yeah, maybe I should just say that um, right up front here that um, this whole area is very complicated, but the way to, that we're trying to make it more digestible for ourselves and also for the community is to say, this is a, f a family of brain diseases. There are different ones, but it's a family that tends to affect the frontal and or front part of the temporal lobes. Um, for some reason, we don't know why. Uh, and this family of brain diseases, for some reason, starts in one of the areas within that swath of the brain. And if it happens to start in the left frontal lobe, for example, you often will get a what's called a non-fluent variant of progressive aphasia, which basically means that a person's speech output, and often their writing too, is choppy and broken down in a way that, that doesn't allow them to produce their normal communication. If it starts in the front part of the left temporal lobe, then you get the semantic variant of primary progressive aphasia, which is where you stop understanding the concepts and the meanings of words and often don't understand what people are saying to you. Uh, if it starts more on both sides or more on the right side, you tend to get one of the variants of behavioral variant. Uh, and, and there are lots of forms of that. So just because you have one of these types of the condition doesn't mean that you're going to get all the list of symptoms on, on the standard diagnostic criteria. And that's something that we always try to help people understand is how do you personalize this to your own experience and think about what to expect for yourself, not necessarily, uh, you know, what other people tell you they've experienced. And that's where having a, a team or a, a good, uh, you know, a clinician or, or support specialist is really valuable because most people with the progressive aphasias don't necessarily have a lot of the 
same behavioral symptoms as people with behavioral variants. Some of them may develop those, but not everyone does. And I think it really uh, is challenging to figure out, you know, what are the things I need to worry about and what are the things I don't need to worry about so much? Um, and that really is an individualized um, uh, care plan. I, I often wonder because, um, you know, a lot of pathologists I've talked to and people or, and doctors say um, a lot of times it's diagnosed as Alzheimer's, but it's actually a couple different dementias, um, especially as they progress. Um, so I'm wondering if there is any relationship, um, like if you if you start off on the path of FTD, do you eventually um, get, does it attack the hippocampus? Does it eventually go to the part of the brain that's responsible for memory? Is there any interrelationship between the two? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, the People's, people with FTD don't usually start out having a memory problem, but sooner or later, most people with FTD develop a memory problem. Sometimes it's the kind of memory problem where they it's harder for the person to um, tell you an experience that they had, but they can uh, they can recognize it when someone reminds them. Uh, so it's a little it's more of a memory retrieval problem. It's not that the memories are no longer there, which is commonly the case in people with Alzheimer's disease. It's more that the person has trouble bringing back the memory or conjuring up the memory, but a lot of times they can respond when they're cued on it or reminded of it or shown a picture of something. So um, that really can differentiate people in terms of the type of memory loss they have uh, from people with Alzheimer's. I think at the end of the day, all of these diseases cause people to lose their functioning and uh, it happens in different ways, depending on the specific dementia that people have. But at the end of the day, independent functioning is universally compromised, no matter which of these conditions people have. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always astounded that. So Don, I'm curious about the treatments. Like, are there antipsychotic drugs that have helped your daughter? What is she being prescribed? I mean, for me, I'm always astonished that there's not more drugs developed for behavioral symptoms of, of Alzheimer's. I don't know what the case is for FTD, but I'm curious, what is your daughter, how is she being treated and has anything helped? Um, well, there's nothing to slow it or to cure it at this point, but um, as Dr. Beauvais and actually Kara still sees a psychiatrist because he's local to kind of help with the medication, um, keeping on top of that. And I appreciate both of them very much, but they try to treat the symptoms uh, Kara does pace, like I've seen in some of the questions, uh, comments. Uh, she paces, um, and you can kind of tell when she's agitated because um, Dr. Dickerson, at this point, she cannot carry on a conversation. Um, she she has some automatic responses that she can still verbalize. Um, and her memory, she has agnosia. She does not understand, and she has no time concept. But she has, I can tell she has long-term memory due to the fact of the friends that she acknowledges a picture of different things, but she can't express any of that to you. But her short-term memory, I don't think is really, um, I just, just nothing that she cares to deal with. Uh, you know, I just think it's something, I shouldn't say she doesn't care to deal with it, but it's something she can't deal with. Um, it's not something that she's able to do now. But um, the medications that she's on are such as, she takes Seroquel, um, which is, um, really helped her. It kind of helps with the um, agitation and keeping her a little calmer. She takes trazodone at night, which helps her sleep. Um, 
uh, Dr. Beauvais has, with his expertise, he has seen how certain medications help um, control certain symptoms. But it's really an individualized um, approach. Um, But I will say that um, March the 5th, they're actually going to be meeting with the um, FDA as having a patient-focused meeting that I hope to, um, I'm planning to be a part of, where the FDA wants to know what are the things that you're seeing with your family, you know, with your family member or loved one? Uh, what are the things that are your concern? Because they haven't developed um, medications yet, but that's their hope to eventually um, to do that. And um, I know it may be a long way from coming, but having a daughter so young who's lost her life uh, basically to this illness, um, I want to hope to have a, a positive effect um, to others in the future whether it be through awareness or, or helping through the research. She's part of two research um, studies. But um, the medications, she's also on like a low dose of um, Prozac. Um, there are some kinds of medications that they've used that have helped, but they definitely have not. Right. But there's still like a lot of antipsychotic, anti-anxiety type drugs. Mm-hmm. So is that what's available, Dr. Dickerson, to um, people who have been diagnosed? And are there, I mean, obviously we're not trying, like this is a very individualized, needs an individualized approach to treatment. Um, but what are you seeing with FTD um, patients? Are, are, are some more successful than others? Yeah, um, it's, for the most part, the medicines typically used to treat the standard symptoms of Alzheimer's, uh, the, the ones that are FDA approved for Alzheimer's, don't work in FTD and may, sometimes can actually make symptoms worse, um, at least temporarily. Um, so it's really the basically what you might call the psychiatric medications that can be very helpful for treating certain kinds of symptoms in FTD, just as they can be in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, and you know, I think the medications you describe, Don, are very commonly used, and there's at least some evidence for some of them that come from small trials that have been done. And I think we use them and find that they can be helpful for treating some of the symptoms that can be pretty distressing for people. And that does take a certain amount of expertise. We often work in partnership between neurology and psychiatry uh, to try to find the best combination of medicines for each individual. And they can take the edge off of some of the symptoms that can be really mm-hmm. uh, disabling. But I commend you for uh, telling your story, Don, and for being part of the um, patient-focused uh, drug uh, development discussion on March 5th, because I do think that the FDA always shows up at every meeting that we want that we ask for them to participate in, because they know this is a devastating rare disease and they want to really keep the their doors open to any ideas that we have about how to develop better treatments in the future. Um, and I, I, I want to comment about the speech part of it and the communication. Is that a red flag? I mean, you know, I know people uh, who have been diagnosed with um, Alzheimer's but they're, they're, you know, they're older and in a later stage, but they can't communicate anymore. They lost their words, they babble, you know, they can't. So to me, I was like, I think that's the frontal cortex. Could that be FTD? So is, is this the communication and the loss of speech a clear marker that this could actually be FTD and not Alzheimer's? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that, that for most um, 
people who have who are right hand dominant and this is maybe reversed in left handers but in general you've got uh, a swath of of the left uh, frontal parietal and temporal lobes that are important for different aspects of language and in ftd you can have that affected either in the frontal or the front part of the temporal lobe in alzheimer's you can very much have that affected in the back part of the temporal or parietal lobe so it's kind of this c-shaped circuit here that can be hit from a number of different types of diseases that lead to dementia and um, you can see some patients that uh, ultimately are diagnosed with a form of alzheimer's that have only language symptoms at the very beginning and um, end up with the type of language problem that you're talking about it's much more common as you say deborah for that to happen later in the course of alzheimer's but sometimes it's the very beginning of how people's Alzheimer's affects them. Yeah, it just shows you how complicated the brain is and how much more we need to learn about it. Um, what about the progression of this disease? I mean, FTD, as, as Dawn ex, um, has explained to us that it's, it's going very, it's progressing very quickly for her daughter, who's a very, at a very young age. Um, FTD, is that more characteristic? We know you can live with Alzheimer's for 10 years or more. Um, what about the progress? What what is it about the pro progression of FTD? Yeah, FTD in general is a, a can be a more, on average, rapidly progressive dementia than Alzheimer's. Um, you know, I think if numbers are you know slightly conflicting depending on which data you look at and when you count the the clock is starting to tick in a sense in terms of diagnosis versus symptom onset and so forth, but in general, with Alzheimer's, you've probably got about a decade to maybe even 12 years of average lifespan with a lot of caveats. You know, a younger age of onset tends to be faster progressing with Alzheimer's. With FTD, it's a little shorter, probably average of seven to 10 years. Again, with a lot of variability. I mean, there are people that live only three years with it. There are people who live 20 years with it. It, it can be pretty variable. And I think the pace of change for an individual is the best guide in terms of thinking about the future rate of change. And in general, again, the younger people with FTD tend to have a more rapid progression, unfortunately. Okay, now I'm gonna throw it to Dawn just before we wrap up here. Do you have any questions for Dr. Dickerson as we have one of the leading experts and I know you were so excited. So do you wanna ask him anything? Uh, yeah, you know, he's answered quite a few of the questions. Um, I was very excited about being able to um, learn more because I think knowledge is definitely so important in any type of illness or disease. But when you're dealing with a rare disease, uh, learning all that you can is we want the best quality of life for our daughter. Um, and I know everyone's different. Now, our daughter, when is it, I guess, uh, common? Like our daughter appears to want to be treated somewhat like a child. Um, when you talked about the dignity of a patient, uh, Kara tends to find comfort in her father and I, uh, you know, tends to be um, more um, affectionate. And, and if something happens, like I trigger the doctor for a possible UTI um, after, you know, they took care of her, she automatically, the doctor even said, I think she wants to kiss you. And I needed to take my mask down and she kissed me on each cheek. She's very much more like a child. She'd never do that as an adult, you know. So is it common for them as they do regress is it, you know, to treat them, the things that tend to make them happy or they tend to respond to, is that okay 
if that's not something you would normally do with a person of that age. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a really important question. And I, I think this is where um, we often talk about you as the uh, patient's loved one who knows them best as being the expert in that person's experience and in that person's needs and wants. You know, you end up often uh, having to be somewhat telepathic in trying to imagine, like, what is she trying to tell me by the behaviors that she's, you know, doing? And clearly she, in that description you just gave, which is so poignant, she wanted her mom, you know? And I think that mm -hmm. you just, you can't not respond to that, right? I mean, it sounds like you did exact, exactly what she needed. And I think that's what we always have to do is to think, okay, I may not be the expert in the brain disease and in the way her brain circuits are affected, but I'm an expert in her and her behaviors and in inferring what she can't communicate any longer uh, about her wants and needs. And I think that's such an important thing to acknowledge and to just be, you know, tr to trust your instincts on. The um, we're getting. I just want to address this one question because we're getting someone who says they've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and they have, um, a, you know, a lot of sensitivity. Um, sometimes my head hurts so bad I can't even touch my scalp. Um, before I was diagnosed, I lost my hair and I'm losing it again. Um, I had blood tests done, but no one can explain it. Is this a symptom of of dementia? Do you know, Doctor Dickerson, of like increased sensitivity in one area? It can be. I think um, it's more common in uh, people with certain types of FTD. Um, and I think that it's less common in general in people with Alzheimer's. But again, it all depends on where in the brain the condition is um, changing things. And so um, there are parts of the brain called the insula that are deep between the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe that process information that's coming from your body inside and um, if that doesn't work right which it is commonly affected in ftd less so in alzheimer's but it can be then you can have essentially a misinterpretation of what would otherwise be a normal body sensation um, that doesn't mean it doesn't feel painful or unpleasant to the person but that's partly the brain sending um, mixed signals if you will because it's not that part of the brain's not working right but i, I think it's the kind of thing that we try to treat when we can. It's not always um, possible to really make a difference in that internal experience, but we, we don't want people to be suffering from things like that if we can try to do something about it. Absolutely. So I just want to say part of what we're trying to do at Being Patient is exactly this, and it's to bring the experts and people impacted by dementia together because we think there's equal importance to both sides of the story. And by marrying um, both sides, we hope more so that we will enlighten science to think of, you know, um, things like you're mentioning, Don, um, that are so important, especially when it comes to rarer dementias like FTD. So, and I should say that, you know, Brad Dickerson is at MassGen, Harvard's MassGen. Um, he really is a foremost expert on this. Um, do you wanna, I know Katie Grant, who you work with, has a site. Is that part of the MassGen? Do you wanna tell people about it? We can post the link to it uh, here, Brad, but if you just wanna give us a, a quick, uh, yeah, flag to the site. Sure. Yeah. Um, we, uh, Katie Brandt is our director of caregiver support and public relations. Uh, 
Sorry, I muted okay. you for a second. Sorry, Katie's, Katie's been ahead. running um, <laughs> educational and support groups remotely through the pandemic, and um, you know most of those are targeted toward, or some of those are targeted toward the patients that work with us, but some of them are targeted toward the broader community, and so. Um, we have a website called uh, ftdboston.org, or you can just Google Mass General FTD Unit and get to it. And there's listings that come from that that uh, uh, talk about our program offerings, that, that some of which are open to the public. That's great. And I, I just want to give both of you my sincere thanks for, for your time and sharing your story, Dawn, about your daughter. We, we really wish you all the best in, in the care. I can imagine that this time is especially difficult um, during the pandemic. Um, sounds like you're doing a wonderful job. Um, and to Dr. Dickerson, who, who is like massively hard to get on his schedule, but we managed to do it. So I'm so pleased and grateful to you um, both for sharing your stories. Now, if you um, want more about, to know more about this, um, we will post the, the site that MassGen for FTD has um, for more information on that. You can also um, please sign up for our newsletters at beingpatient.com um, uh, where we will always flag these type of talks. We're gonna bring the experts to our site to answer questions that you may have. Um, thanks very much to the Being Patient community and to our guests today for sharing their stories. And and to Dr. Dickerson for his advice. Thank you so much. Thank you.